Well, as many of you know, uh, my wife Jelena and I have a three-year-old at home, and with the changing seasons as we head into summer, uh, my daughter really enjoys waking up with the sun. But this becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it, when the sun is rising earlier and earlier and earlier. And my wife and I, we could probably describe us as tired parents. I don't know if any of you can relate to ever being in that type of season. But I feel bad for my three-year-old daughter because the reality is she just doesn't want to be in bed. She is full of zest and zeal for life, and she just wants to attack each day with all the energy that she can muster up, which is a whole lot. But poor mom and dad can't handle this day after day after day, right? So we went out and bought something called a grow clock. Have any of you heard of a grow clock? It's just this little clock that um, a little sun will come up when it's time to get out of bed. So we set this for 7 o'clock, and the deal with Libby is, Libby, you can't get out of bed until your sun comes up. And this worked for like a week, maybe. And we, we actually, we would look on the monitor and you'd see her like sitting, staring at her clock with this poor kid. Uh, but over time, she started coming up with different excuses. One time she unplugged her clock and came to me to tell me her clock wasn't working. Um, so that was a smart one. The other time she was thirsty and she wanted water. So she came out of her room to tell me she needs more water and then never went back to bed. And the one that I can never resist is when she comes to me and says, Dad, will you just snuggle me? I'm like, oh, it's like 5.30 in the morning. I'm like, okay, okay. And I snuggle her or whatever, right? Um, so we're tired. But my three-year-old daughter, I, I can relate to her really longing to want a change in her circumstance. She's in bed, but she doesn't want to be in bed. And while I think that this is an attribute in her that hopefully one day she'll grow out of, I recognize in my own life that I too am not all that good at waiting. That I too find myself in seasons where I just desperately want to change my circumstance. How about you? Seasons in your life where you're dealing with constant disappointment. Wondering when that disappointment will end and things will feel normal again. Seasons of life where you're experiencing very difficult depression or anxiety. Wondering when those emotions or those feelings will pass and life will feel normal again. And you'll feel a sense of joy and peace restored to you. Or maybe it's a situational change that you long for. Perhaps you're single and you're longing for that spouse, wondering when that will come. Perhaps you're married and and struggling to have children, wondering when God will give you kids. Maybe you're dealing with an extended health struggle. It's going on and on, and you're just waiting for that diagnosis that fits and that treatment that will resolve the issue. And in each of these seasons, we find ourselves longing for our situation to change. Well, how about this one? 2020, global pandemic, restrictions, not one, not two, but three lockdowns. This past year for all of us has been one of waiting. One of living in a time, living in a circumstance where we're longing for things to change. How did you handle 2020? How did you do in the midst of one lockdown after another? How was your emotional health? How was your attitude towards friends and family and the government during this time? Be it a global pandemic be it situational difficulties, be it emotional challenges. 
we all go through these seasons in life that we might rightly call wilderness. Seasons of wilderness. In our text this morning, I believe we could say that David was in one of these seasons. Where life was not the way that he thought it should be. That based on his understandings of what God had for him, things were not going the way they were supposed to. Eugene Peterson, writing on this passage, comments on the reality of wilderness. When he says that in the wilderness we are face to face with the basics. We're face to face with God. The confrontation, the the experience of waiting that we we have in this time is a test. A temptation. Do we deal with God or not? We take the test and we become more or less. We grow up or we regress. David became more. David grew up. So friends, how are we to navigate these seasons of life? As we come out of this pandemic, how are we to navigate that? As we transition into a new sense of of normal, possibly in the months ahead. How do we go through life so that we're not just getting by, that we're not just going day to day, kind of limping our way through, but that we're actually thriving? Well, I believe that in our text today, we might learn something from David. Now, this series we've called Everyday Faith. And the whole thing we're looking at here, I remember in our early conversations about this series, looking at the life of David, man, we recognize that as a church, as a community, as a world, we, our lives have been so disrupted. So often in this last year, we've wondered, God, where are you? What are you up to in the midst of all of this? And when I look at the life of David, I see someone who, you know, though there's extremes, you know, we're not running into war, we're maybe not anointed to be the king of Israel, but here is a man who we, I believe, can really relate to. A man who struggled with sin. A man who struggled with doubting. A man who wrestled with God. Who got frustrated at his circumstances. Who longed for change. Who lived in the sense of waiting. Who did really great things and made some great decisions and then made some really bad decisions. And in the life of David, I believe each of us has a bit of a companion. That as we watch David live out his everyday faith, it might help us to live out our everyday faith. As the chapter of this this global story, this pandemic, as the page turns to what's next. So I pray it is an encouragement to you. Well, in our text this morning, David is on the run. Last week, Pastor Norb left us off with David fleeing to Gath. Uh, to experience some sort of refuge or safe haven in that place. And we have a map up here. Sorry, it's not overly clear. I couldn't get the resolution up. Um, But you can see all these green lines on this map. And it's basically what it's showing us is all the places that David went during this wilderness season. From Gath, he went to the cave of Adalam, where men came and gathered to him. His family came and gathered to him. And looking at his own family, he's like, man, Saul might come after my family. So from the cave, he goes to Mizpah of Moab, which is not Israelite territory. That's the the green that takes us to the other side of the Dead Sea. And there he leaves his parents in Moab under the safety of the king there. And then he's told by a prophet to return to Israel. He ends up in the forest of Hereth. Well, in this forest, he gets news of a battle. The Philistines are attacking Israel. 
And so David leads his men to a battle at Keilah. From there, he ends up fleeing because Saul finds out where David is. The Philistines have been defeated. It must have been David. So Saul goes after David, which causes David again to be on the run, hiding from Saul. And he runs to the wilderness of Ziph. The people who live in Ziph aren't very kind to David, and they rat David out. And from there, he flees from Saul to the wilderness of Maon. And in the wilderness of Maon, Saul is so close to catching David, only to be called away because of the Philistines. Just in one short chapter, we follow David running all over the place. It's exhausting. But the narration is quick and the picture is clear. David is on the run. David is living in the wilderness, running for his life. Things, I'm sure, are not the way he thought they would be when Samuel anointed him king over Israel. And this chase climaxes for us at the cave of Ein Gedi. You have a, a picture here, obviously a modern day picture of Ein Gedi. It looks really nice, doesn't it? But this is wilderness. There are threats of, of wild animals in the wilderness. This is not a place you'd want to settle down with your family. And here, Saul and David's game of cat and mouse comes to a head. Saul's men have finally caught up. And our text tells us that Saul is relieving himself, which is a polite way to say that Saul is going to the bathroom. Um, I don't know if you guys read much of Eugene Peterson, but he's not known, he's, he's, he's known for how greatly he crafts words. He's so good with words. But I, I just laughed in his book, Leap Over a Wall. He, this is what he writes about Saul. He says, there we have the king of Israel sitting on his throne, i.e. the toilet, with his back exposed, taking a dump. And I was like, oh, Eugene Peterson, what is that? But that's the image. That's the image. And here we have King David looking at the man who's been wrongfully pursuing him, looking at the man who's seeking to kill his life, looking at the man that caused David to put his family into safekeeping, His back is exposed, his pants are down, as vulnerable as could be. And there's no mistake, the narrator in 1 and 2 Samuel, what he's doing is contrasting Saul and David in this moment. Where David has been the one vulnerable and on the run. Where David has been the one whose life has been threatened. Now we see a reversal in roles. Saul sits incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. What would you do if you were given the chance to put an end to a difficult season in your life? What would you do? David here faces a profound temptation to take advantage of the situation in the cave. He could have ended his wilderness journey. In fact, David is encouraged to that end. In verse 4 of chapter 24, we read, The men of David say to him, Here is the day in which Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, what's interesting about these words of King David's men is that they presented to him as a prophecy. This is what God has said. But these words are not recorded anywhere else in Scripture. God at no point told David that he would have the opportunity to do with Saul as he wished, and that he was supposed to avenge himself in a moment. But be it the words of these men or be it the the experience, the, the, 
all the bitterness and frustration perhaps that, that David's had at Saul, David acts. He moves towards Saul. He cuts off a corner of the robe. Now the king's robe was a, a symbol of his authority. To cut off the corner of Saul's robe was to, to, take, to say that he was seizing power from Saul. That's a big deal. But right away, right away in verse Verse 5 to 6, David is struck at the heart. He's struck at the heart because he has acted this way against Saul. So he goes back to his men and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Can you picture this scene? We have to realize that David isn't the only one on the run, right? These 300 men with him, they're also on the run. They're living with him in the wilderness. They're hiding in a cave with David. They're like, David, let's bring an end to this season right now, man. You can do it. And David has to come to them and convince them, guys, I know you want this wilderness season to end, but Saul is the Lord's anointed. You can't do it. Our text tells us that with these words, David convinces his men not to kill Saul themselves. And what follows are two speeches. Within 1st and 2nd Samuel, these are the longest speeches, the longest dialogue that we have of both David and Saul. So it causes us pause to pay attention to what they're saying. At the heart of David's speech is a declaration of loyalty to Saul. It's a recognition of Saul's place as king. It's an appeal to to David's own character and to his action. And it culminates with David saying to Saul, let God deal with you, Saul, and let God liberate me. Saul's response is so interesting because up to this point we have Saul who is just murderous and enraged and chasing and pursuing David. It's interesting in the narrative to note that, that Saul does not call David David. He calls him the son of Jesse. He won't even say David's name. And we get to the speech part here of Saul and suddenly he's calling David his son. And it's like something weird has gone on in Saul and a total change of heart. But at the heart of this speech is a recognition that Saul makes that David will one day be king. From Saul's own lips, he says, yes, David. This kingdom will be yours. And not only will it be yours, but it's going to thrive. David asks for the pursuit to end. He asks to stop being thought of as a threat. He asks to not be seen guilty of treason. And in response, it seems like Saul has given David the throne. Unfortunately, these words that Saul speaks do not last very long. So we need only turn the page to see that Saul's pursuit of David continues. Friends, when I read about this situation in David's life, I can't help but ask the question, David, how did you do it? When I think about wilderness seasons in my own life, the longing, the desire that I've had for those seasons to come to an end, I read about David's opportunity and I say, how did you not take that knife and put an end to Saul and put an end to your wilderness season? My wife and I went through six years of infertility, longing to have a child. 
At any time during that six years, if someone would have said, hey, just do this thing and you'll have a baby, man, I would have jumped on that. In a moment, I would have done anything to bring an end to that season. David doesn't do it. How is it that he didn't do it? How did he resist the changing of his circumstance right then and there? And what might we learn from David to encourage us? Well, there's four words I want to unpack briefly for us. The words are surrender, perspective, comfort, and faithfulness. Surrender, perspective, comfort, and faithfulness. A brief word on each First, I think when we look at David, we see that he surrendered control. He surrendered control. David had every opportunity to let his kingdom come and his will be done. But instead of using his power and his influence, instead of using his military know-how, he gives it over to God. He gives control over to God. And he says, the Lord forbids that I do this thing. Friends, at the heart of our Christian faith is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. Which is you and I saying, Jesus, you are Lord. You are the one in control. You are the one who has authority over my life. It's us saying, Jesus, in in so many ways there's things where I want my will to be done. I want my kingdom to come. But Jesus, I surrender that to you. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And when I look at this text, it blows my mind. David did not decide that he was the one to determine who was anointed. David did not believe that he was the one to determine who was anointed or what was anointed. This whole idea of anointing is is this picture of God setting something aside for a specific purpose. And for David... More than once, he refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. And the people are saying, David, take your kingdom, do your thing. He's saying, whoa, 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 guys. That might be what I want, but Saul is is God's choice. It's not my right to determine what God wants. That's God's position. It's not my right to control. We see this heart of surrendering control come out in, in verse 15 during David's speech. Where he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see it and plead my cause to deliver me from your hand. David is saying, Saul, God's going to judge you. And when we read this text, as a reader, I'm like, man, David seems to have every right to be bitter. He seems to have every right to be unforgiving. He seems... To have every right to do to Saul what he wants to do. But David's saying, no. God's the judge. Let God be the judge. Friends, we surrender control and submit our hearts to God as we pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And when we think of surrendering control, it's like, man, that's really hard. How do we do that? Well, I think we gain help from the second word, perspective. We need to seek God's perspective. We need to learn to see as God sees. This section of narrative clearly communicates to us the reality of God 
working behind the scene. God is clearly at work. At one point when Saul is coming after David, and David and his men escape in in chapter 23 um, at uh, verse 14, uh, the author of First and Second Samuel makes a point to say that God did not give David into Saul's hands. And it seems around every turn that when it looks like Saul is almost getting David, something happens where David avoids Saul's capture. As a reader, we are invited to see and have the perspective that God is at work in the background. That ultimately God's will will indeed be done. It will be accomplished. This is the perspective that we must have in our lives, especially in the midst of difficult seasons. A passage of scripture that's often referenced in relations to this is Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, I moved my bookmark, uh, it's on the screen. Uh, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Friends, this is a passage where we get so much hope. Because just before this, Paul is talking about how much God loves us. And when we look at the story of Scripture, we see over and over again an invitation to consider that we can have joy in the midst of suffering. We can have joy in the midst of pain. The author of, um, the author of James points out that we can have joy because ultimately it leads to Christian maturity as we go through suffering. But the end of the New Testament culminates with this picture of Jesus sitting on the throne making all things new. Now these are difficult passages to think about in light of all the suffering and the pain that goes on in the world. How can we just say that God's going to make all things good? Friends, the early church suffered. They suffered for their faith. So much for us as Christians, as much as God can work now in our situations, I believe that he does. As as much as he can change our circumstance, I believe that he can do that. Sometimes we spend our whole lives waiting for the change of a circumstance that's probably never going to come. When we surrender that control, when we seek to see things as God sees, I believe we get a glimpse of Jesus sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. And an assurance that comes that at the end of time, at the end of days, God will have his way. And we can join with David who looked at a terrible situation and said of it, let God be judge of that situation, not me. So this begs the question, friends, what perspective do you seek in times when you're desiring to change your circumstance? During this whole pandemic, I admit to diligently seeking the perspective of news, media, of my friends. I spent hours of mindless scrolling on Facebook or Google News, reading articles and listening to government announcements. Now, news is not bad, but what perspective does it give me? Does news give me the perspective of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in heaven? No. Does the news and Facebook and social media give me the perspective of Jesus' peace that passes understanding? Of a joy that cannot be explained? No. 
I did not stop nearly enough to pray and ask God, what is up with this pandemic? I did not stop nearly enough to pray and say, God, what are you up to in the world through all of this? And especially did not stop and ask God, what are you up to in me during this pandemic? When my frustration, when my bitterness, when my rage is surfacing, God, what work do you want to do in my life? Friends, our perspective of our current circumstance must come from God's word. Time spent in his word, in his presence. When we sit in prayer and ask to see a situation the way that God sees it. And I want to add to this because it's not only seeing a situation that in God's eyes, but sometimes it's seeing a person through God's eyes. Think about your greatest enemy. Think about that person that you're just like, I don't like them. David was being hunted by Saul as if he were some sort of animal. Saul had every intention to kill David, but David sought God's perspective. And when he looked at Saul, he did not see First of all, this murderous man trying to kill him, he saw God's anointed. God gave David the ability to see his greatest enemy with God's eyes. And friends, it might be a scary thing to pray. But ask God to allow you to see your enemies with his eyes. I think this idea of perspective leads to the next word. Comfort comfort. We need to receive comfort from God and experience God as our refuge. Now something so fun about reading about David's life is that we have the Psalms that kind of speak to these different events from a different perspective. And Psalm 57 is attributed to this event at Ein Gedi. And in Psalm 57 we read these words, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. How's that for a perspective? (laughs) He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Throughout the Psalms, we have David referring to God as his refuge. God is his refuge. And according to Old Testament scholars, this word refuge would only typically refer to something physical. This idea of moving to a certain place and experiencing refuge in a physical context. But the way that David uses it and the way that the Psalms employ the word refuge speaks of refuge not as a physical place, but of God. That no matter a situation, no matter a circumstance, the children of God, the people of God can retreat to God. Find shelter with Him. Psalm 46, the, 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 the psalm that talks about being still and knowing that God is God, begins with God is our refuge and strength, our ever present help in trouble. David knew God as his refuge. Friends, it's so easy not only to live with alternative perspectives, but to run to alternative places of refuge. What are you doing to find comfort in a difficult season? When your days are marked by frustration, hurt, 
bitterness, anxiety. When your days are marked by the refrain that this is not the way life is supposed to be. Where do you go to feel better? What do you do to feel better about what's going on? We're part of a culture that really believes in sitting in front of the television and shutting our brains off. We're part of a culture now that just wants to sit on social media and scroll endlessly through Facebook or Instagram to take our minds off what's going on, and that really, really doesn't work. But there's so many opportunities for us to experience false comfort, be it from that endless scrolling, be it from sitting in front of the TV, be it from going to the liquor cabinet and having a few extra drinks. Be it to doing whatever you can to distract yourself from what's going on inside your inner world. The opportunities are endless. But when we read the scriptures, the invitation that we see over and over again is to come to God with our bitterness, to come to Him with our frustration. In Matthew, Jesus has these, these, these words that we all know, that invitation where He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart. You will find rest for your soul. But so often I hear Jesus' invitation and I like turn my ear off to it and I go and I do something else. I go and do something else. But friends, the invitation is to get alone with God. To go to Him in prayer. To cast our cares upon Him. To cast our frustrations upon Him. Yet so often we don't. Catholic theologian Ronald Rollhauser says that our one great act in prayer is to show up. Our one great act in prayer is to show up. And I know that I am so guilty of not showing up. I am so guilty of of experiencing all this discomfort in my life and going to all these different places for refuge, going to all these different places for comfort. And friends, it never satisfies. I'm more frustrated. I'm more bitter. I'm more anxious. I'm more depressed. And Jesus is standing there saying, just come to show up. And as we show up, I believe it leads to our final word, faithfulness. We're able to remain faithful as we have comfort from God, as we have His perspective, as we are surrendered to Him. We remain faithful. David was grieved in his spirit by cutting Saul's robe. He'd begun to give in the temptation to believe that his comfort was more important than God's desire. But David quickly repents of this behavior. Friends, in difficult seasons, it's so easy to believe that our comfort is more important than God's desire. It's so easy to fall into sin during difficult seasons. When Jesus was in the wilderness over and over again, he was tempted by the devil. He had every opportunity to turn his own back on his Father in heaven. Every opportunity to sin. But how did he reply to the devil each time? He gave the devil God's perspective. So friends, we must not view difficult seasons as an excuse to sin. But we need to keep turning to God. 
The other element of this faithfulness is that we need to see our faithfulness as an opportunity to help lead others through similar seasons. Something I love about David in this narrative is that his actions ultimately became a profound testimony to his men who were with him. His faithfulness was an opportunity to help lead them through their wilderness season. David's men desired David to act in a certain way. And in challenging seasons in life, in wilderness seasons, in the pandemic season of our world, advice, varying perspectives come to us from every single side. What do we do with these varying perspectives? What do we do with the gossip? What do we do with the conspiracy theories? What do we do with all these things that come at us that are maybe inviting us to sin, that are inviting us to be bitter and resentful and unforgiving. What do we do with it all? I believe that as we wait upon God, we can give back to these people something different than what is being given to us. When David's men gave him murderous thoughts, David returned to them grace And an invitation to see God's sovereignty. When Saul convicted David to death, David returned to Saul, life. When David felt the pull to control and force his own way, he returned to it submission and faithfulness to God. When you and I are given gossip and reason to be bitter and unforgiving, we can return forgiveness and grace. When we are given reason to dislike or reason to hate, we can return love and compassion. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross when evil was being given to him over and over again and he returned to it forgiveness and mercy. When he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And this leads to a reality that the way we navigate difficult seasons is a profound testimony to our acquaintances, to our Facebook and Instagram followers, to our friends, and to our family. And what do they see? Do they see someone faithful to God, finds comfort in Him, who has God's perspective and is ultimately surrendered to Jesus? Or do they see something different? So how have you navigated this pandemic season? How have you navigated your most recent wilderness experience? Were you able to give God control? Were you able to hold God's perspective? Were you able to experience Him as a refuge and remain faithful to Him? I know when I look back over this last year, I screwed up a lot. I lost perspective. I lost sight. I did everything I could to stay in control. I wanted the waiting to end. I did not navigate the season as well as I would have liked. Maybe you can relate to me on that. But let's not let this season come and go. I want to encourage you to take time today or at some point during this week to reflect on this past year. I have a a few questions or prompts that you might use to do that. If if you're someone who who needs to move, I encourage you, maybe go for a walk 
with these questions and, and pray through them. Or maybe you're someone uh, like me who you like to journal. Maybe you sit down and journal through these questions. But here might be some things you journal. And, and these were um, included in Norb's email that went out this morning. Lord, the greatest disappointments of this past season have been. And just name them. What are the things that you've struggled with this past year? Just give them all back to God. And then take time to say thank you, God, for all that you have taught me in this season. That might be harder to identify. But I believe as we think good about it, we'll we'll discover some things we've learned. And then take some time to confess and say, Lord, forgive me for all the ways I sought the perspective of others over your own. Of the mindless scrolling online. Of my contribution in in maybe hateful speech or bitterness or unforgiveness. We might pray, forgive me, Lord, for the times I do not go to you for comfort or refuge. And list the various things that you're tempted to go to. And then finally, Lord, help me be faithful to you in difficult seasons. And may I be a help to others who are enduring difficult seasons. I think there's another slide that has all of these. If you want to pull your phone out and take a picture, you can, you can do that. But friends, we're going to turn our attention to the table, to communion this morning. So if you have your cups available, I encourage you to hold those out. Jesus is one who demonstrated to us a life of surrender. A life that had perspective of God's will and plan. Jesus is one who over and over again demonstrates that when he needed comfort, when he needed to feel at peace, he went to the Father. And Jesus is one who exemplified profound faithfulness. And friends, he went to the cross that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be ones who can walk in a similar way. So we want to remember that this morning. I encourage you to peel back the first layer of your communion cups. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 writes, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I should invite the worship team to join me on stage. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your endurance and hardship. 
your endurance to go to the cross. Lord, your example to us of one who did not seek to control or change or manipulate a situation. Your example of one who lived by the perspective of the Father. Of one who had comfort from the Father and lived faithful to that point of death. Jesus, we thank you. May we learn from that example. And Lord, as we reflect on this past year, the many, many real struggles that that so many of us have faced and gone through, Lord, I pray that you would grace each one of us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that as we remember this past year, Lord, may that remembering lead to fruitfulness in our lives. That we may be people who thrive in wilderness seasons. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.